0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we've got a hot one today. We are going to talk about Beto O'Rourke's comments at the latest CNN town hall on churches, charities, religious organizations losing their tax-exempt status. So if you follow the story at all, you know that uh, in the latest town hall, the uh, Democratic presidential candidates were given some time to talk about LGBTQ issues. They were being interviewed, and during Beto O'Rourke's interview time, He was asked the question, do you think religious institutions like colleges, churches, charities, should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? And Beto O'Rourke replies, yes, no hesitation, no thinking about it, no nothing. He says there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. So as president... We're going to make make that a priority, and we're going to stop those who are infringing on the rights of our fellow Americans. So given the, the transcript of the conversation, you can guess that this went wild on social media from both sides. Right. Uh, the people who had believed this but didn't want to say it were obviously really excited that Beto had come out and said this. Um, I've, in some ways, Beto O'Rourke is like the Leroy Jenkins of the 2020 presidential <laughs> candidates right now. He, I think he's gotten to the point where uh, the only thing more ridiculous in the things he's saying is, is his continual belief that he might someday be president. Uh, he, whether it's the gun things where he says, you know, the, the line for the Democrats had been— sure, let's restrict gun access. Let's even, in some cases, go and and confiscate guns when there's cause. But I don't think anybody had been willing to come out and say, yeah, you know what? Actually, we're just going to take everybody's guns. And and what does Beto do? He says, we're coming for your guns. Yeah. Uh, Same thing on religious liberty. There are a lot of people on the left, I think, that that wonder why churches are continuing to get tax-exempt status, don't pay property tax. um, But they hadn't come out and said it, we'll leave it to Beto O'Rourke to come out and say, well, actually, we're going to strip everybody's tax-exempt status, no doubt about it. Um, That's where he is in his campaign right now. And so on the one hand, I think it's an error to fly off the handle and say, this is what every Democrat believes about religious institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And and at the same time, I think it's a mistake to write this off and say, well, this is one person on the way far left. This, This isn't what anyone believes. Um, And even beyond the the political aspect of this, I know we want to spend some time just talking about why churches and religious organizations have tax-exempt status, the impact that they make, and then maybe draw some conclusions about what we should be thinking on when we hear something like this as believers. So when you heard those comments, what what is the first thing that you thought? Well, on the political side, uh, my first thought was, Beto
1: O'Rourke is not going to be president, or it seems extremely unlikely. However, some of the people standing on that stage are going to be in charge of cabinet departments, and a lot of the things that infringed on religious exercise and speech came from the administrative state and not from Congress. And so I do think that what Democratic or Republican presidential candidates say is something that could translate into action. So I took it seriously. I agree with your assessment. I don't think it's necessarily everyone's opinion, but it is part and parcel of that far-left ideology. However, leaving the ideology aside a little bit, I think what you and I want to talk about is maybe uh, if Beto O'Rourke is listening, and I hope that he is, get a little education here before you fly off and just say something that's, uh, you know, favorable soundbite, is understanding why does this... Why is there a tax-exempt status for charitable organizations to begin with? So let me kick yeah, it I, off. And I
0: know uh, uh-huh. Beto is a faithful listener of the podcast. Oh, I think so. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he listens to So We Speak. Yeah. But basically, I think a lot of our listeners would like to know, well, wait a minute. You know What, what is the, the status quo coming into this? And so for uh, a very long time, very early, before and after the Bill of Rights, religious organizations— and charitable organizations. Those are two different things, and I'll let you talk about that later. I think that'll come into play later. But religious organizations were given a tax break. When the uh, income tax came into play, it felt like that the government would be overreaching in inhibiting religion by taxing it. So you don't pay property taxes, you don't pay income tax, and it is tax deductible to individuals to give to a synagogue or a mosque or a church or uh, not-for-profit, religious or non-religious hospital, etc. And here, here's why: it it has a lot to do with the social fabric. Let's leave Christianity, Judaism, religion for a moment. The founders understood that religious activities were beneficial to the social uh, fabric. I'll give you an example: most of the hospitals. In America, uh, there's been a wave of for-profit hospitals in the last few decades, but most of the hospitals uh, were founded as not-for-profit. They were not profit-making enterprises. People donated money to build those buildings in the hospitals, and in many cases, churches, uh, clinics, colleges, community centers. Many of these things got built through religious organizations, and all of those things are really integral to our social fabric. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, there's a great quote from John Adams, one of our founding fathers, that uh, talks about the importance of religious institutions in shaping our people and our society. He said this, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to uh, for the government of any other. In other words, he's saying our Constitution presumes a certain shared morality. And one of the things the founding fathers realized is that religion, Christianity in their case, but because of freedom of religion, all religions, they felt contributed to the social fabric and the coherence of our culture and our civilization. And so if you think about religion and all of the various institutions, it's amazing when you step back how much social good is being done and how much those institutions knit our society together.
0: Mm -hmm. That's one thing I think is easy to forget when you listen to comments about uh, churches specifically, especially over this issue of Uh, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ, transgenderism, when you get into that constellation of issues, it often becomes the progressive left versus the evangelical church. And it's easy to forget that there are actually a whole host of institutions that would be affected just over that single issue, and that's not the only issue. So you know, one of the things that I think people have been quick to point out is that when Beto or whoever makes comments like that, you don't usually hear them attacking things like, Um, institutional Catholicism, for example, the Catholic position is the same as evangelicals on that. Uh, You also don't hear him mentioning mosques or Muslim organizations. You don't hear him mentioning Orthodox Jewish organizations. Um, A lot of times, it's just the evangelical church. Some of that is to score political points. Some of that is because there's such a confusion over the response to that between mainline and And other Protestant denominations, evangelicals, it's become a convenient whipping boy. But when you just step back and look at the situation as a whole, there's a broad coalition of organizations doing a ton of charitable work that would be covered under that same blanket accusation or or at least ideological shift in what is tax, what's a tax-exempt organization and what's not. Yes, and I would add to
1: that is this is just the latest or perhaps the first of many ideological litmus tests. Uh, if you think about it, for the moment, he's basically saying if you don't support same-sex marriage, then you should lose your tax-exempt status. What about hospitals, whether religious or not, that chose not to do transgender therapy procedures? What about Mm -hmm. hospitals that chose not to do abortions? What about, uh, you know, colleges and universities that taught a particular version of history that doesn't necessarily match the revisionist history that's prevalent today? In other words, once you crack into the ideological test for this social good this social benefit of tax relief then where do you stop that's the other part of it it's whoever's in power puts whatever ideological test one wants and best case you know you have a chaotic environment worst case the entire charitable structure of institutions crumbles which i think would be catastrophic for our nation
0: I, think yeah, I, I agree cool. with that. And, and I think one of the things that we have to remember is it's it's one thing to stand on a stage and declare that you don't need the help of evangelical charities or Christian charities um, and, and charitable giving for that matter. Uh, it's another thing to actually look at who's doing the majority of the humanitarian work in our country. Right. Um, so the next time a natural disaster happens, sure, the United States federal government is going to spend money and be there. Uh, and I'm sure there are a few atheist charities that are going to be there, but for the most part, people are going to rely on religious institutions and humanitarian organizations to come and do the kind of humanitarian work that we expect. And, and this is what I, I usually refer to as the atheist in the soup kitchen myth. There's nothing that technically prohibits from an atheist from serving in the soup kitchen, and I'm sure there's a good number of them do. But... You don't notice that many soup kitchens that are named after the patron St. Richard Dawkins <laughs> or uh, the other famous—there's no Bertrand Russell soup kitchen that I'm aware of. Exactly. They're, it's not that they're prohibited from doing that. It's statistically they don't do that. They actually don't have a, a well-contrived reason to be there, whereas— Religious faith, whether you agree with it or not, does have a reason to put you in a place where you're serving other people. So the question of altruism is is fascinating to look at from the uh, social Darwinian perspectives, and 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 especially uh, the way that we've talked about um, Dawkins' idea of memes and and things that get passed down almost coincidentally. Right. In society, there are people that make arguments that altruism can be explained through an evolutionary framework, but anecdotally and uh, statistically, certainly, the way that people give their money, the way that people spend their time, that does not appear to be the case. It appears that helping other people comes from religious motivation. So, we would need a pretty full-scale reevaluation of non-religious ethics in the country on the on, on the one hand, but to put To put it on the bottom level, we've spent hundreds of years developing a broad array of charities and humanitarian organizations that are religiously based. If we gave every single one of them a choice of either towing the ideological line or going out of business— It would be a generation before we would have even a fraction of the ability to meet the needs that arise in our country uh, that we have right now. So just from a pragmatic standpoint, it seems like it would be a giant step back, not to mention uh, the illiberalism that he's espousing and and other things like that. You know, that's a great point and uh, a subtle
1: point to go on from that, but it's one that's important to me is— When you talk about things like natural disasters, you talk about uh, a variety of problems, whether that would be famine or uh, difficulties from uh, disease, anything like that. If the government is going to address those problems, and I think that's what many on the far left would say, is we don't need these religious or other humanitarian institutions to do it because the government's going to do it. But I want you to think about how the government does that. It's a coercive mechanism in the sense that the government has to take more money from its citizens— albeit it would claim for a noble cause, and that is to help other citizens. But it's fundamentally a coercive mechanism. And history has shown us that once you start down that road, the more coercion you have, the easier it is to do it. Whereas this simple tax benefit, which isn't coercive, it's simply uh, trying to, you know, stimulate people to voluntarily do it no one's making anyone give money to a church or to a humanitarian cause and there you strengthen your culture because people step up their step up of their own free will and i think that's an important cultural element to achieving our ends by stimulating tax breaks rather than increasing taxes and coercing citizens i just think that the results in our culture will be remarkably Better if we make this as altruistic as possible.
0: Well, it comes down to a difference in anthropology. Um, If you believe strong government, extensive government is the way to address the needs of the country, what you're banking on is a very different kind of motivation, as you're pointing out, than if you create a system, which has been the system since the founding of our country, where people are incentivized to give their money towards causes that they care about. So, you, I mean, you don't have to be a cultural anthropologist to know that people are more excited to do things that they're passionate about and agree with and have right. a, a stake and an interest in than when they're being coerced to do it. Uh, that That's just a basic fact of human nature. So you create a system that has a positive reinforcement or at least a incentive for people to give their money you would think that that would lead to a lot more charitable giving, people giving of their income to things they know are going to make an impact in the area they are passionate about and want to impact, than the government takes more money in taxes and it gets to decide where the money goes, when to what cause. Um, that, that, that seems to be a pretty basic understanding of human nature. Um, but it does reveal a pretty deep worldview divide as to why people do what they do, what it means to be a good society, and the control that people should have over their own lives. And it, it's not just libertarians or evangelical Christians who believe that you as a citizen of the country should be able to do what you are passionate about with your disposable income. Uh, but unfortunately, that's become a debatable point. Right. But uh, it's interesting, too,
1: if you look back at the at the uh, litigation on this, I'll give you just a little bit because the Supreme Court has basically adopted a standard of benevolent neutrality. This goes back to the Warren Burger Court in 1970. There was a case uh, where a property owner sought to prevent uh, tax benefits for for property, property tax for, say, a church is built there. It's used solely for religious purposes. And the Supreme Court held that exemption, in other words, exempting them from property tax, giving this tax break, if you will, to religious organizations, did not violate the establishment cause. It wasn't considered that you were in some way trying to establish a religion. As you pointed out, that break is available to all religions and many non-religious organizations as well. And so they coined the phrase of benevolent neutrality. And so in the next year there was a case, uh, Lemon versus Kurtzman, and this is called the Lemon Test. And they basically firmed it up and they said, look, if you've got a law that serves a secular purpose, that doesn't have the primary effect of advancing or inhibiting religion, and it doesn't produce impermissible government entanglement. In other words, the government's not supposed to be entangled with religion. Then it's fine. In other words, if you wanted to give a tax break to anyone who gave to a church, as you know, as or any kind of charity, as long as it wasn't targeting a particular religion. For example, if you said you get a tax break if you give to your synagogue, but not to your mosque or your church, that would violate this test. So really, the Supreme Court has had very much of a hands-off approach to this, saying that it's a good thing for churches to do the work that they do. And as long as the government isn't tipping the scale one way or another, these laws are fine. And so what Beto O'Rourke and other, some others are, they want to put another test in there, if you will. They want to put a, an ideological litmus test on top of this lemon test. And I'm not sure that that would make it pass the Supreme Court, but I also realize that a lot of harassment can happen without ever going to the courts, simply from the administrative state.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to put it. I, I want to shift our focus a little bit to talk about what this means for us as believers. Like we said, obviously it's easy to jump to the conclusion of an us versus them. This is what all liberals think. This is what Democrats want to do to Christians. Uh, it's easy to jump to that. It's also easy just to not deal with the cognitive dissonance at all and write it off yeah. and say, uh, you know, this is just such an outlier. We don't even need to think about this. As believers, what, what should we think about this? I'm inclined to think that, that we should be less concerned with these individual comments and, and more concerned with taking the opportunity to get some perspective uh, to go back and reevaluate where we stand on certain things uh, before we even get to the question of what is a christian take on on 501c3s or tax exempt status i mean that that's one thing but how do we approach this as believers yeah it's a great question i'll i'll jump out first and you can jump on and, and correct what
1: I say if, if it's needed. But I really think that we have this dual citizenship. I think we've talked about this before. And my firm belief is since we live in a country where we have the right to vote, to lobby for free speech about this, we should speak up. We should vote. We should vote for things that make our mission and that is our mission: is to spread the good news and to live out our Christ-like lives. And I think things like this—the right of free speech, the right of free exercise, the fact that we don't pay uh, donations, part of those donations to the government—we pour it all into our communities—are good things. And I would vote for those things. However we realize that the church has been through a lot harder times than this. I mean, if you think about it, Cole, I suppose it's just a tiny little blip in history where anyone's tithe check was ever tax deductible. I don't suppose that's happened in much of history. And yet people have faithfully given uh, to the church, given to uh, the kingdom, because the reason that we give doesn't have anything to do with what we might get in terms of a tax break. So I think that we should be confident that however this turns out, the kingdom is going to move on and faithful Christians are going to continue to give of their time and their resources and their money to invest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, There's nothing magical about getting a tax break for it. Is it helpful? Yes. Would I vote to keep it? Of course. But in the end, I think uh, Christians will do what is needed to advance the kingdom
0: yeah I, I don't have much to add to that i from from a pers- perspective standpoint, and especially the the way that we are oriented towards an issue like this, I think is really important and And I would put it this way as Christians, regardless of what the political issue is, we always need to be coming at something like this from a vision of what is right rather than a fear uh, or Mm -hmm. Um, a sense of being scared of what we could lose if things don't go our way. So as you pointed out, the majority of the history of the church, the church has not been getting favorable treatment from the government, has been getting unfavorable treatment from the government. Um, And and in many places in the world right now, you know, they're not getting tax breaks in China. They're getting their churches (laughs) shut down and uh, buildings blown up and confiscated all over the world. And, you know, I, I think the statistic is in the last hundred years, there have been more Christian martyrs than in any century in the history of the church. Things are not good around the world for Christians in certain places, and we need to not take that uh, for granted. Now, we don't need to carry guilt into our uh, donations. If anything, that should that should make us want to give more since we have the opportunity that we do have. Right. But when it comes to thinking through something like Beto's comments— I always just want us to think hard about our motivation. Are we reacting because we're afraid or angry? Um, We stand to lose something? Well, sure, that's that's definitely true. But it's better if we argue based on what we are convicted is right before God. So we do believe, politically speaking, that living in a society where people are free to believe what they want to believe is good. Mm -hmm. We don't want to live in a a demagogic society from secular people who claim they don't have a religion. We don't want that. We also are not trying to establish a theocracy in the sense that we want to force people to convert. Now, do we want to live in a society that reflects God's vision for our good and for the joy of all people? Absolutely. And we want politicians who believe that. We want to vote along those lines. Like We, we do want to be active towards that. We, we're not indifferent to the way that people are treated in society. But at the same time, we don't believe that conversion comes primarily through the actions of the government. Right. So while we want to preserve a society that allows us to believe what we want to believe, no government can actually take that away from us, and no government can actually stand in the way of the gospel transforming people's hearts. And so when you think about it that way, I think it gives us a, a much better opportunity to articulate what we are about, what we believe the Bible says, what we, the role we get to play in society as citizens, as opposed to we're worried that we're going to lose our stuff or our ability to right. give in a certain way and that, that that is actually going to be an existential threat to our faith. Um, maybe the best thing that we can assert in a moment like this is there is no such thing as an existential threat to our faith. Exactly. Um, Jesus is pretty clear about that. Uh, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against our faith. That's a much bigger issue than uh, the O'R- progressive left and <laughs> Beto <O'Rourke. Yeah. laughs> So I think when we come at it from that standpoint, we can be principled, we can be honest, we can be confessional, um, we can be firm and secure in what we believe rather than reactive, fearful, angry, angry. Uh, for, for him or for other people thinking that way, that's probably our best move.
1: I agree. Hey, listen, in the time we have left, let me invite our, our listeners in on this. So I'm going to make an observation then I want to ask you a question. And I would invite our listeners to give us uh, chime in on this via email or contact us at SoWeSpeak.com. But here's my observation. This issue about tax, uh, losing a tax benefit status for let's just restrict this now to the churches is a bigger deal than at any time in history because the way we do Christianity, I'm not condemning it, I'm simply observing, we have churches that have property. We have started hospitals that we bought and built buildings for. In other words, we have liabilities that the church never had before. And so it's a bigger issue because we actually have taxable property. And historically speaking, most churches really didn't have big buildings. I'm thinking, go back many, many hundreds of years, but certainly into the first century. So here's my question for you. Let's suppose we both believe God is sovereign. And let's suppose that this does come to pass. Fast forward 20 years, 30 years, whatever, and churches are struggling because they're persecuted and they've lost their tax exempt status. Here's the question. Would it be better to have a million churches with buildings etc. like we have today or to have 50 million house churches? In other words, what do you think about if we were forced to it? what would be the effect in America to go back to the first century model where there literally were no church buildings? there were 50 million house churches in America. Would that be a good thing or would that be a bad thing? What do you think, Cole?
0: Uh, I, I don't know that I don't know that I can go with one of the two options here because what I what I want to point out in your question is, the interesting thing is it's easy to romanticize the, the first century, and obviously there's a lot of house church movements out there that have done a lot of good, and, and uh, it's easy to sit back and criticize the big institutional church and mm-hmm. certainly the liabilities that come with that in, in a situation like this one. But I, I want to assert that if the church loses its tax-exempt status, property tax ravages the ability to own buildings across the country. A lot of churches go out of business. The church will not struggle because of financial situations. Right. Um, the institutional church, Christian organizations, specific churches will, will struggle. But if the church struggles in America, it won't be because of uh, what the American government does. It'll be because of what believers choose to do or not do. It will reveal the state of the true church for people who... Um, have not trusted in Christ and it will present a great opportunity for the church to begin to thrive in ways that are less easy to blend in with. I think if we were to mark this entire movement in American Christianity in the last generation it would be a movement towards a place where it's a lot more difficult now than it was 10 years ago or 50 years ago or we could probably argue a hundred years ago to be a comfortable, cultural Christian, somebody who partakes of Christian culture, but doesn't actually believe uh, the truth about Christianity. So by stripping the Christianity uh, out of the culture, it reveals the true state of the church. And so in that case, I don't think it matters if you have a big institutional church. It doesn't matter if you have tons and tons of house churches. What matters is the Holy spirit working in the hearts of believers Um, And that that combined, meeting together, as the Bible says, preaching the word, sharing the gospel, outdoing each other and showing honor, loving one another, that is the effect that Christians have on culture. And whether we do that through the vehicle of big churches like we have now, that's awesome. I I love that. Or whether we do it through a mechanism of the church when it's oppressed in house churches and meeting secretly, uh, I love that too. That's that's worked in lots of contexts. What this forces us to do is keep our eye on the ball. Yeah, We want to be able to take advantage of all the opportunities we have. Right now, we have the opportunity to give and have that giving be tax deductible. Well, let's do that. I I don't want anybody to come away from this podcast thinking that we take that for granted. That's huge and amazing, and we're thankful for that. If there comes a day where that's not true, we're not threatened by that. Um, In fact, uh, we actually aren't threatened by anything that a government can do to the church, even if they make it a lot more difficult given the way that we're used to having church in America.
1: Well, I'm going to—I agree with what you said, and I think uh, two two key points for me. One, your point is there is no existential threat to the church because the church is, ironically— grown in some of the harshest conditions, historically speaking. But secondly, I also like the idea of stripping away the things that make it easy to be a Christian. I think that's true in my personal life. I know that when I'm too comfortable, it's very easy for me to fall into the parable of the sower. If you remember the seed that grew up and was choked by the weeds, and Jesus said, you know, that's the that's the comfort of life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things. You know, it's easy to get comfortable when it's when, uh, personally, when I take that for granted. I think corporately, as a body, it's also easy for us to make uh, a comfortable Christianity. And so I think that whatever happens, we should enjoy and use this benefit as long as we can. But I don't think we should be discouraged because I do think that the Holy Spirit prunes the church periodically just like the Holy Spirit prunes us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think my final my final thought on, on that would be let's not let our cynicism keep us from taking advantage of the blessings that we have in America today right And let's not let our comfort uh, keep us from facing the truth and bringing the gospel and all that it has for our lives um, to our neighbor and to our country.